Hey everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Homecoming Podcast. If this is the first Homecoming episode you've watched, welcome and thank you for listening. Homecoming is a platform that provides the space for people who identify as Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics, and I'm your host, Angel Rena. So before I begin the episode, it's pretty clear that right now is a very tumultuous and overwhelming time for everyone, but especially for Black people out there because of the recent murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and just so many more Black people in this country. And when I think about what kinds of conversations are happening right now in both various Asian American communities, but also just in general about racism and anti-Blackness, they're pretty heated, especially since a lot of us are talking with family members we maybe haven't spent all this time with in a while, or we're trying to converse with our friends via social media or FaceTime rather than in person um, due to social distancing and COVID-19. And so I really wanted to use this homecoming platform first to bring Black folks and Asian folks together to just talk about what's been going on in the country and in our own communities and talk about racial hierarchies, all this social media activity and, you know, just get things off of our chests. But I also wanted to discuss ways that right now the Asian American community can be a better ally to the Black community and just moving forward how we can all best support each other. So yeah, today on the podcast, I've brought my friends Emily, Michael, Amiri, and Jungwoo to talk about Black and Asian solidarity. And this conversation's probably going to be a lot, but I think all of us are close enough where we can be honest and genuinely ask questions and voice our opinions. And hopefully all of you guys listening can also learn something from this conversation and start thinking about new ideas and questions. So yeah, thank you, Emily, Michael, Amiri, and Jungwoo for agreeing to do this and coming on today. Um, first, like, how are you guys all doing in general? Like, I know, I know that's like a lot to ask, but. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think that's a loaded question. That's a loaded question. We're hanging in there. Yeah. yeah. So before we jump into the conversation, do you guys just want to each introduce yourselves first? Well, um, I guess I can start. <laughs> uh, my name is Amiri. I am currently a junior at Columbia College. I am looking to study African-American studies and education. I'm trying to go into journalism. And yeah, I graduated Andover with three of the five here, or including myself <laughs> in class of 2018. So glad to, glad to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Uh, my name is Jungwoo Park. Um, I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I actually went to high school with Angelina. That's how I know her. Um, I'm from California, but I just finished my first year at Columbia. Um, I'm Korean American and an immigrant. I immigrated to the States with my immediate family. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. 
Hey, I'm Emily, as the five of you know. I also went to high school with all the lovely voices that you'll be hearing. Um, currently, I am going to be a junior at Barnard College. Very exciting. And we're just living our lives as a Nigerian American 20 year old, surviving and thriving in this world. Very excited to be here. And thanks again for inviting me. Um. So I guess I'll just go. Um, Michael Coddington, uh, I was class of 18 with Emily and Amiri. Um, I did four long years at Andover, three and a half, but if you know, you know. Um, yeah, um, I'm a junior, rising junior at Howard University, uh, English major, theater minor. I'm on the track team, but that's not really pertinent to this discussion we're having today, but that's just a good thing for everybody to know. Um, and I'm really excited to have this conversation. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, and just just going on. So we've obviously got a lot to talk about today. But I think first, it's incredibly important in order for us to understand a lot of the racism and anti-blackness that's present in many Asian American communities today. We have to acknowledge a lot of historical events and like the history of Asian Americans and the history of Black people in this country. And I think actually a lot of our histories in intertwine or we see just really common themes between our races. Like, for example, the first Black people in the U.S. were slaves and like also the first Asians in America, like their bodies and labor were also exploited by white America for profit. And there's definitely so much history we could cover in this episode, but I also know that all five of us are also, you know, trying to learn more about our histories and our people's histories. But yeah, any historical events that you guys want to touch on first um, relating to the points we're going to cover later on? I know that you, Jungwoo, you mentioned that you wanted to touch on some Asian American history. Sure, yeah. Um, I guess I could try to give a brief history. So. Um, Asian American history started in, eight, in the 1850s when young single Chinese men were recruited as contract laborers in California. Um, and at the time, white businessmen and political elites in California were facing a bit of a dilemma. They had just voted to enter the union as a free state, but they had a growing economy they had to build up. So they needed a source of cheap labor that also wouldn't spoil their like pristine white polity. So their solution was to bring these Chinese men in and do two things. First, they declared that Asians were superior to black people in terms of intelligence, diligence, etc., so that they could make them work in slave-like conditions while distinguishing them from like the quote-unquote actual black slaves. And secondly, they labeled Asians as being permanently foreign and unassimilable with white people, which allowed them to preserve their white society. So I think these two things, the relative praise and the alienation of Asians in this country, always go hand in hand. And equally important is the fact that from the moment Asians stepped foot onto American soil, the racial identity and the racial narrative surrounding Asian Americans has been interrelated with that of Black people. Um, and then different groups of Asians began to immigrate to the States, and they would inevitably be persecuted and then banned so that by 1924, all Asian immigrants, including Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, and Indians, 
were fully excluded by law, denied citizenship and naturalization, and prevented from marrying white people or owning land. And this all changed with the Black Civil Rights Movement and the passage of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which abolished immigration quotas based on national origin and ushered in kind of a new stream of Asian immigrants. Um, I guess the things I mentioned before, like the foreignness and the relative superiority of Asian people um, has kind of been repackaged in modern times. We called the quote unquote model minority myth. Um, and of course that's been created as a direct response to black activism and black political movements, but we can get into that in a later bit. Um, I think just to, to touch on the model minority myth, um, uh, I know, so I know people, there were colleagues that we had at Andover. Um, so there was one colleague, he was, uh, he was going to be a new junior at the school. Um, and I followed him on Facebook because I wasn't thinking with it back in the day. We friended each other on Facebook, whatever. Um, and he, he would retweet a bunch of stuff or repost a bunch of stuff that was about how black people need to stop, you know, um, complaining so much about racism and they need to try harder and they need to be like Irish Americans who came up from nothing and Chinese Americans who came up from nothing and like no one else complains about racism, quote unquote complains about racism. So I think that that's like a very interesting thing to think about because you said that the um, like kind of the history of uh, Asian Americans began around like the 1850s and like by then, you know, black people were still legally enslaved. Um, and then even after slavery was quote unquote abolished, like we see ways that slavery perpetuates itself in like literally everything. Um, and to even go further, uh, lynchings are still um, very public spectacles, I think, all across the country. And, and again, lynchings look different too. Um, sometimes you have the case of, you know, Fred Hampton, when at the height of the civil rights movement, they lynched him, but it wasn't necessarily a public spectacle because it happened at night, I believe. But then you have police killings that happen in broad daylight. Um, and it's just, I think it's just like, a, it's a reminder of like the fact that no matter what really happens, like that power structure is, is just different depending on the color of your skin in America. Because we also know like, like to be black is not necessarily to be um, someone who is, uh, I guess, ethnically black. Um, like if your skin is dark, like you're deemed black, but they're white passing black people um, and people who in some ways kind of move outside of that mode of blackness. Yeah, another thing I think is really interesting historically is the theme of exploitation and labor that I feel like still exists to this day inherently. And I think you see it in a lot of the arguments specifically surrounding ideas of like a meritocracy. So as the idea of like, oh, well, Asian, Asian Americans, they don't complain about racism and uh, black people who consistently complain about racism. But I do feel like Asian Americans and black people are often always also the two groups used when it comes to things such as affirmative action or when it comes to diversity and hiring. I think there's this quickness that we go to of like, oh, well, you know, Asian, Asian Americans, there's the stereotypical notion of like, oh, well, you know, they need higher test scores and higher SAT scores um, and are consistently compared um, to, you know, black students who are seen as someone who's always in quote unquote need of affirmative action and for like athletic scholarships and prowess. And that's why they're there. I think they're two groups for very, who for two different reasons are seen as only there to serve an institution um, in the way that that institution sees fits for 
black students, it's through athletic endeavors and making money that way. And then for Asian and Asian American students, it's for research grants and making the school seem more pristine in that way. Meanwhile, the two groups are always pit against each other. And it's never the question of why is it that we're allowing mediocre, mediocrity and whiteness to consistently go in and out through elite college systems, whereas you have two groups who have proven themselves as more than capable for centuries after their bodies have been exploited um, and their talents abused, and you're still left for the two groups vying for that one sliver of dignity and demeaning and opportunity that is you know, given by white folks, as opposed to being able to band together and take what's, our, what's been deserved and what we've worked for. Um, and that's something that I think, since our paths were so started very similarly historically, I think it's interesting how it's led us to two very different points in our modern day. Um, so that's something that I think we do need to learn more about. And as well as, as we're exploiting the relationships of like interracial solidarity, I think that's something that isn't really talked about as much as one would think, especially because our histories have such similar starts, but very different ends. I also feel like, and Michael and Emily, y'all know, because we were all in the same critical race theory class with Ms. Paulson, CRT, we talked a lot about how race, critical race theory is about race as like a, in like a legal sense. And so Ms. Paulson, our, our teacher at, at Andover, will always stress the way that race and then particularly whiteness is molded around almost the fact that it's not concrete, like whiteness is not is not a solid thing. And so that's in itself a characteristic of whiteness. And so we took a look at, I can't remember all the cases by detail, but we took a look at various moments throughout history when uh, Asian Americans were, or just non-Black people in general, non-Black people that white people were trying to figure out like how to racially cat categorize them. Like those were the moments when whiteness was able to adapt and either expand itself and allow for certain people to be categorized and receiving the benefits of whiteness or when whiteness shrunk and kept itself in an excluded in an exclusive sense and so i think it's also interesting when we think about like the questions of affirmative action or of black and asian solidarity how like this is all often orchestrated through a lens of whiteness that is maintaining itself and that in some moments is open to asian americans like extending the privileges of whiteness extending the privileges almost of, of non-blackness um, the fact that you're not black is uh, a grounding characteristic of whiteness. But I think it's also interesting on the flip side moments when Asian Americans are not allowed entry into the categories of whiteness and what those benefits, like those, those um, tangential benefits of being a part of whiteness, like are, are, are sometimes aligned and sometimes given, but sometimes they're not. And so I feel like that's something that I learned, especially in critical race theory and I feel like it's interesting to thinking about today and how we think about solidarity is like the ways that we have to be conscious of how whiteness and white supremacy creates moments when uh race is a construct and that's like uncovered you know um and I think I think Asian the, the group Asian is a difficult one to talk about because it's it, it encompasses such a wide variety of people and geographic locations and experiences. So I guess like largely you can divide the category of Asian into East Asians, South Asians, Southeast Asians, um, which all enjoy 
drastically different levels of privilege. Um, I guess like if you look at Asian Americans as a whole, they seem to be doing pretty well economically, but Southeast Asians um, have much higher rates of poverty in the U.S. compared to other, uh, especially like East Asian people. Um, and it's also important to note that like after the passage of that act in 65, the, the, the U.S. began to kind of selectively bring in Asian immigrants that tended to be wealthier, that tended to be high, like highly educated. So you kind of, like the people who were let into the country tended to be people who were more likely to succeed. So kind of that, even from the get-go, like the, the, the Asian people who were let into this country already had advantages that, for example, Black Americans or, um, I guess, poorer Asian immigrants aren't afforded. So that definitely kind of skews the data about Asian Americans that people often cite. I think that's really important. And it, it makes me, this is a whole nother question and like a whole nother conversation, but I feel like, I think all of us, Emily and Michael, like we have, our parents came from places that aren't like America in a sense, like my mom is from here, but my dad is from Jamaica. Um, and so I think it's also interesting to add another layer of, of complication with all of this is like, Jungwoo was speaking about how um, different people from around the diaspora, but people around the world, like African descended people come into America with different levels of access and privilege to different institutions and then how that like is informed in the college process. And so like, I know a lot of colleges and universities, some of them that we go to, um, I guess all of them that we go to really are, you see like black students, but often it's black students who come from uh, even if they are immigrants, like, and, and not originally from Black America, like, they will come with a, a set of access and a set of opportunities that the white institution historically um, believes in because they, they are able to um, align with whatever vision that the institution has. So I know even at Columbia, like, you can go back to the 60s and the 70s when there was, like, a lot of protests from Black American students to try and get these American universities to accept more Black Americans. And they did that for a while, but then they realized like Black Americans were bringing in a lot of the racial resentment, obviously, onto the campus. And so it became very difficult, specifically at Columbia. They were like, it's just too much work. The students aren't academically prepared. And a lot of them are bringing political ties <laughs> from Harlem or from Brooklyn or from wherever they're coming from in New York, Black Americans. And then we saw like an influx in recruiting from Black students who were not originally from America, like whose parents are from Africa or the Caribbean and who had a different sort of connection to the question of race. And so I think it's another complicated layer. And I'm, I personally want to do more research because I'm not even 100% like knowledgeable on all the areas in which like immigration impacts it. But I think that's a really important point of just like, how does one's sort of lineage impact their political and, and, and their social understanding of self and how that manifests in how we think about solidarity and the complicated, you know, layers of solidarity amongst groups and people. Yeah, I think Jungwoo and Amir, you both bring up really good points because I think just the monoliths that have been created of both races, because Asian encompasses so many groups just as much as Black encompasses so many groups, all with very differing experiences. Because if you were to ask my best friends from home who are Filipino, their experiences in college will be very different from one of my best friends in colleges and her experience as like a Korean American 
And also the way in which you look at race would also be very different if you are coming from a South Asian or Southeast Asian country where there are folks with skin darker than me and versus you're coming from an area that you know might not have any dark skinned folks and how that would look like and how your relationship with blackness or anti-blackness would look like and manifest. Um, and I think that's a really interesting point to bring up because I think when we're talking about solidarity, I think it's also interesting in the groups that have already shown solidarity and or that have a historical tendency of solidarity. So one that comes up to the top of mind, at least for me, um, and I still need to read more about it, but at least um, a lot of Black folks not participating in the Vietnam War because of their stances as, you know, America as, you know, anti-imperialistic ideologies. So you have like, oh, well, I, as a Black person in the United States, know how much it sucks when I'm exploited and my labor is taken for granted. And when I'm forced to adapt to these particular ideologies that I truly never asked for, and you have the United States doing the exact same thing in Vietnam. And I think there was, at least from the two articles I've read, there seems to have been at least some sort of solidarity in that moment, specifically through um, some members of the Vietnamese community and some members of the Black community in terms of both having anti-imperialistic ideologies that connected them. Um, and I think you also see that in terms of the pockets of solidarity that exist. Um, I think there's a lot of history between colonization and imperialism in that connection as well. And I think that's another form of which solidarity can be brought in and another form of which also where you see that the two racial groups have just been collapsed into whatever was most digestible um, because there are also varying experiences between someone who is like a black Afro-American who is coming, who is the descendants of enslaved folks versus someone like myself who was, who is the child of immigrants um, and specifically West African immigrants who are often overrepresented in black populations, specifically at elite institutions. And I think a lot of that falls into a lot of West African countries being colonized by England. And you have a lot of the similar mentalities, particularly in terms of how one should conduct themselves as a student. I think the respectability of politics in terms of how one should be as a person and how you should adapt your body and form to the white gaze and how that would get you. And oftentimes it did get you more successes than folks who were able to be more liberated um, and live as freely as they wanted. Um, Emily and Amiri, I thank the both of you because um, I feel like you both kind of touched on points that were very much connecting, but also very different and unique. Um, and it just kind of makes me think about like, when people, when people say Black Lives Matter and people want to shout Black Lives Matter and go to protest and write Black Lives Matter as a hashtag, it's just like, you have to think that that's all Black people. And that's, and to us, we, we know that like, all Black people is not necessarily Black people who have high-end jobs and wear suits and go to nice institutions and stuff like that. But I feel like the white moderate's perception of Black Lives Matter is this person who happens to be my coworker, their life matters to me. And that's about it. You know, I can tell them that I support them. But then it's like you have somebody who might not have been given the same fortune in terms of their access to whiteness and their access to white institutions. And they're doing something that, that you don't necessarily approve of, like working on a part-time job or, or selling drugs or something like that. So you think about that and you think of do all Black Lives Matter. I know personally, like I got into a charter school, but it was only by lottery. And, you know, we, we got into the lottery or whatever. And when, when access to higher education was presented to us through programs like Prepper Prep and A Better Chance and Breakthrough Collaborative and stuff like that, it was pretty much their way of saying, like, we feel like you have the intellect 
and like the look and things like that to hang with these white people in the classroom and to be inserted into these institutions without them kind of having a negative perception of what blackness and black people are like. But to me, that's completely unfair because it's just like education is not currently and has not been previously preached as um, an edu as an avenue for black people, I think, to liberate themselves um, in a proper way. Obviously, education costs a lot of money. So uh, people's first people's first um, idea when they think about college is how am I going to pay for it? Um, and obviously, like the scholarships stuff like, and stuff like that. But even the scholarships, the scholarships are in names of white people a lot of the time and mostly dead white people and they're giving their money to you but it's like there's certain conditions to that and it's like you you almost have too much to lose um and it's and it can become very very crushing and very very destructive but then you think about you know like i said the people who weren't dealt the same cards as you and they're like doing whatever and like you know the military they prey on black people they play on, they prey on black people who don't have another option or who they, who they see um, needs the military as their last option. And those black people go to the military and they're treated poorly. And, you know, they're put on the front lines and they die quickly and they have PTSD. And, you know, those people, it's just like, I don't know, like any, any area you really look like, if you look at the military, if you look at the way that the police are militarized, if you look at the way that housing works, you can look at redlining, you know, like we learned about redlining briefly in critical race theory. Like if you look at all those things, any of those things, like you just see how racism just puts itself in. To literally anything um and it just kind of hangs over black people like a big dark cloud yeah i guess i i briefly mentioned the model minority myth earlier but i want to emphasize that it was it emerged in like the mid to late 1900s as a direct response to racial change and like civil rights movement so i think from what i saw it first appeared in 1966 in a magazine article talking about how it, it basically praises Japanese Americans as being like kind of diligent and frugal and the underlying kind of implication being that Asian Americans ability to move ahead on their own and like kind of putting their head down and just doing their own thing and succeeding in American society um, ought to be like what other racial minorities should work towards. And this was kind of in response to the growing black power movement. Um, so this kind of, apoliticalness of Asian Americans is, is, is a very big part of the model minority myth. And I think, I think like this, the stereotypes of black people as being like loud or angry or violent or dangerous is directly, is inextricably linked to the stereotypes of Asian people being like submissive and apolitical and quiet and obedient. Um, and while the former kind of leads to brutality and the incarceration of black bodies, I think the latter also results in like the invisibility of Asian people in American media or like the underrepresentation of Asian people in American politics or kind of the further exclusion of Asian people in American society. And I think protesting and fighting for and alongside our black peers as Asian Americans is an important step in reclaiming power and visibility as like Asian Americans ourselves, um, and, and an important part of breaking that like narrative that to succeed as a racial minority in America, you ought to like not make a scene, you ought to just like do the best with what you're given, which just isn't true. It, it, isn't, it isn't reality for the people of color in this country. That's really, that's a really interesting point. Um, and I feel like I guess one of the things that I'm thinking about now is what you're talking about when, when you say that, like, 
that's so interesting how you brought up how like the, the stereotypes and sort of like characteristics that as a as a as a society we assign to black populations and to Asian populations in America are are in weirds way like in a weird way complementary like supplementary but also like opposing and one of the things I'm thinking about is how like black blackness is necessary for America to exist right like not only as a labor source historically but as a source source to exploit as a source to derive meaning in many ways like whiteness derives meaning off of what is what it isn't which often is not is blackness in a weird way like again something that we learned from critical race theory but i'm interested in how you feel like asian american what is the necessity of the asian american in like american society like if we think about the role that black people play in america again as a as a sort of antithesis to what america is as the original sin what do you both think and jerena and jungu like how do you think about like what the asian american role is thinking about some of those characteristics that have historically been assigned if that makes sense it's like question at least just like growing up i guess and like how that how you interpreted that it's it's a, it's a large question <laughs> a large really question know. yeah i don't even know what like the right answer is i'm genuinely curious like i don't even know i don't i don't know i feel like a lot of the time asian americans are just like this strange group that's just kind of floating in the middle of this racial hierarchy and we're often like just this source of comparison i guess to other minorities um yeah i, I don't know like like one thing that's kind of related to this but also maybe maybe not i guess when i think about the history of asian americans i think there is a huge part of our history that's like we're trying to actively distance ourselves from other minority groups like the black community and i think asian america like that's a huge group right and like even when i'm talking about the histories of different ethnicities within asian america like there is this history of distance and and separation um like for example i think during world war 2 when the us government was putting japanese americans in internment camps like chinese and korean americans were actively trying to distance themselves from japanese people and like they didn't want to be mistaken for for being japanese and another instance i can think of is the the shooting of latasha harlins in 1991 by a a Korean shopkeeper in Los Angeles like when that was happening other Asian Americans were also just trying to distance themselves from Korean Americans and so i think like if we're having this much turmoil in our race and like within our race we can't even come together like that is amplified times 100 when we think about our race in relation to other minorities so like i don't know asian americans were just like this group that's kind of sandwiched in the middle and like that's that's maybe trying to achieve a certain level of equality with whiteness but it's like 
that's impossible because we are kind of trapped in this hierarchy and because we're not white. But like then again, many of us are more privileged than other minorities um, in this country. But yeah, yeah, sorry. All of this probably didn't answer your question at all. I feel like Asian Americans are in this unique position in the middle where other minorities are being compared to us to be like like you guys mentioned um more hard working or smarter or more diligent um yeah i i have to think about that question a little more yeah i think i think to add on that i think regarding the role of asian americans in like white supremacist society i think I think the model, I think model minority is a good way of putting it. We're kind of, I don't know, kind of wedged in between like black and brown people versus white people. Um, and I think we're often used to kind of like incite like proxy struggles between like different groups of people of color. I think um, there was a lot of media attention um, kind of placed on the black and Korean-American kind of tensions during the LA riots um, during, I mean, the, the opposition against affirmative action is, is led by white people. I mean, that, that recent um, lawsuit against Harvard that was led by this white man who had tried multiple times in the past to try to fight um, affirmative action. And Asian-Americans definitely benefit from affirmative action, but they're kind of used as like poster children um, for these causes that try to roll back um, you know, programs and initiatives and policies that try to help uh, marginalized people in this country. I think it's also important to understand that Asian Americans haven't been in, in America for that long. And a lot of us are like at most maybe a couple of generations down from people who like immigrated here. Um, and a lot of the people who immigrated here didn't speak English. Um, they never were educated on like the history of the country. And most Asian countries are very like racially homogenous or like the, the concept of race doesn't even kind of exist in like the public mind. Like my, you know, in Korea, like you're just with other Korean people. It's just like, it's, it's just not a thing. Um, so I guess like my parents, my parents didn't know like about the history of racism or like about race in general. And then thus they didn't really teach me that growing up. Um, and I can imagine how, like, I guess that that difference in knowledge or that difference in like history can can lead to some misunderstandings between, you know, people who are forcibly brought here and had their histories erased versus people who like come from a drastically different culture um, and are kind of beginning to experience like racism and race in the United States. I think. The uh the idea of like a me medium or median like group or like a, almost like a buffer seems really interesting and I feel like it goes to the point of this system is in general as dehumanizing and like even just the way that we think about it like our lives your lives our lives are being like objectified in many ways like our our race is a construct that that inherently dehumanizes because it provides and and it provides myth to like to to life and it provides constructs to life and it provides like 
inanimateness to life. And I feel like, um, I think I just resonated. I just thought about that and what you were saying and like the way that both of of you were saying in a way that like, it seems like um, sometimes our histories are like posited and like deposited by like a larger structure that doesn't actually care about the, the individual. And also even like you mentioned with the affirmative action case, I think it is a very, very telling example of how our histories are, are positioned and weaponized and how race is critical to doing that. Like race allows our, our lives to be sort of human or dehumanized and objectified. And then ultimately out of our control, because nobody really, none of us really control race as an idea. Like it's, it's not something that we came up with. So it, I think it just, it foregrounds in my eyes, like the way race is a, is a dehumanizing and a static and an obsolete ultimately like way of viewing people. Um, going off that, I think that, um, I don't know, it just kind of makes me think about, you know, our, our, obviously our time at Andover. Um, I think that something that I noticed definitely um, is in, in, the, in the cases where there are people who are um, quote unquote mixed, I don't really like the word mixed, but people who are of multiple different um, like racial makeups, like they're, where they lie is usually like based on like certain like phenotypes that are associated with with whatever you know race so like if somebody is white and asian if they look more white usually they align themselves with white people and they don't necessarily align themselves with the asian community um and i think that i don't know it also speaks to like what the school necessarily values in each person um and what like what can be valued in each person um kind of like what i was saying before about like how people don't necessarily value all black lives i think that like the diversity is only good for white people if it benefits them because there's not just diversity and like literally we look different like there's diversity of thought there's diversity of action like let's say you know a black face is elected as like a president of a school like andover like how much can they really change you know what i'm saying it's like you want that diversity but do you want everything that comes with said diversity um so i think that um even looking at uh asian americans and african americans how they interact like where i'm from in new york new york is a melting pot like new york is literally like a bunch of Caribbean American immigrants, a bunch of Asian American immigrants, like a bunch of Latinx American immigrants, like literally anybody you can think of. And I think that in some ways, like we've been able to like peacefully coexist. But I think that when you bring up a case like, um, like Latasha Harlan's in, in California, like that's something that I can definitely see happening in New York. You know what I'm saying? Because she, she shot her in the back of the head for something that was what, $2. And it's like, she claims that, she um she claims that she feared for her life. She claims it was self-defense, you know. But black people are just under surveillance from the moment that they walk into shops and the moment that they walk into malls and and people at protests. People, black people are always under surveillance. So I think that um the way that she the way that the gaze that she's looking at her through is like more of a white gaze than she realizes, and that's kind of what is taught. Like and like I'm not gonna like say that it's taught in Asian American communities, but I definitely think that the way that it's been um received from like in my experience is definitely like that it's just like a more white gaze like black people are prone to steal and black people are prone to prone to do bad things and things like that so yeah just to touch upon what you said Todd I think even for like people living in Asia like my grandparents I think a lot of like my grandparents don't know a single black person um and I but like most of the information they get about black people is through white produced 
media, which obviously portrays black people in the light of them being like violent or like dangerous. Um, so there is a lot of, even in like Asian cultures, there's a lot of like subtle anti-blackness. Um, there's a lot of colorism um, in Asian, Asian and Asian American communities. Um, there's like in Korea, at least like it's, it's always thought to be better if you're like paler or like whiter. Um, there are tons of like whitening products um, and like that Korean beauty companies push out. Um, like people, people just like always carry around like, like parasols or something because they're scared of, of like being tan. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, I think even, even, bef- even like Asian people living in Asia, um, a lot of, their their perceptions of, of black people is molded by like the white gaze and that obviously has kind of like a an effect for people who like immigrate to the to the u.s and then kind of perhaps like inadvertently pass on some of those ideas to their children yeah and and something else that i think like i can't speak for other asian people but i think that some asians i'm interacting with like they're all of a sudden on the defensive when we're trying to you know push them to self reflect and think about their subtle racism and their subtle anti blackness but also like the very overt ways that that can sort of manifest and i feel like maybe older Asians in this country, but also maybe younger people too, like they can get super defensive and think that by supporting black people, you're you're sort of like invalidating Asian struggle in this country too. But I feel like that is super problematic. And I think what people need to understand is that like black oppression is not the same thing as asian oppression in this country but also you know because because you're sort supporting another group of people that has been oppressed and marginalized like that doesn't mean your struggle is invalid or doesn't exist if that makes sense and I think that's an ideology that I definitely understand how it occurs. And I think it happens once again because it's put on this hier- this racial hierarchy that always has to have white at the top. And I think because there's always this notion of like, oh, well, you know, like if you're saying, if you're saying in solidarity with this black person, like, are you saying that your experience wasn't as hard? And I think that thinking when you first think about it, like it, one can understand but then once again like when you're coming at it it's coming from and rooted in like a white gaze um and i think that's where a lot of these issues like once again find it the foundation is when you're coming from like a white supremacist capitalist ideology and i think at the end of the day there's always that comparison of oppression rather than an understanding that these oppressions are happening simultaneously um and oftentimes for the same negative reasons so i think for the same reason why like people consistently confuse Asian students who look nothing alike and also confuse black students who look nothing alike. It's because since whiteness is the norm, they can just 
distinguish between like white faces, but whereas faces of color, they all see us the same. Um, and I think that's something where when you really start to dissect it, it becomes apparent that these struggles are oftentimes happening at the same time and happening interdependently. Really. I don't know what the word is when you, when they happen at the same time for the exact same reason and they just cause the same of the same thing. I don't know if that's the word for that. Um, but I feel like any sort of oppression that happens to one group happens inherently with the exception of specifically anti-blackness. I feel like anything that happens to one racial group in the United States happens to another just in different ways and different forms. Um, and how it looks, I think you have a sediment of like same shit, different toilet mentality where it's the exact same forms of oppression, but manifesting in different ways. So I think while some things are clear and happen at the exact same time, so I'm thinking of redlining in certain areas. Um, in the South, it was specifically for like South and North and kind of everywhere specifically for black individuals. But I think people forget that in redlining, like it was specifically targeted at black people, but also they decided, hey, let's just throw everyone in there who's also not white. So in redlining, you had, you know, banks not allowing black folks to own houses, but also not folks who are Latinx or specifically Puerto Rican in certain areas and specifically like Asian and Asian Americans not able to own houses. So I think sometimes issues get diverged into like black and white. And I'd say some issues might be, but I think in a lot of the cases, because of the racial diversity in this country, oftentimes it's then broken into like anything that might be associated with like non-whiteness is then grouped together. And I think when you have that situation, I would hope that solidarity can form, but then I think also specifically and intentionally to prevent solidarity from forming, you have like these microcosms of specific racial groups being like, oh, well, you know, like if you are, Asian or Asian American, you can't do this because that's what black people do. Um, and I think those kind of separations are just specifically for preventing any sort of solidarity and movement in mass towards like civil rights and human rights. Um, because if groups are too fragmented and focusing specifically on their own individual needs, like you're never going to be able to have full policy changes and a full re a full revolution truly with only one racial group at the helm. And I think why we see specific violence against black people in this country is rooted in like the slavery economy that this country is rooted in. And I think that's why specifically anti-blackness is more prevalent in the United States compared to other countries. Um, and specifically like white anti-blackness towards black people. But I think that still comes at the cost of every single person of color in this country um and i think when you live in a country that is anti-black inherently anything that even shares a sliver of proximity to said blackness is also demonized and seen in a negative light and also not afforded the opportunities that they're supposed to have um, and i think when you have something happening like what's happening right now in terms of the protest um for the murder of george floyd um and countless other black individuals i think it also brings to light, at least for me personally, I, this was the first time I was seeing folks talk, folks who were indigenous talking about like their experiences with police brutality, folks who were also Asian and Asian American talking about their experiences with police brutality, folks who were Latinx talking about their experiences with police brutality. And it's something that disproportionately affects black people, but it's also something that disproportionately affects all people of color by virtue of us not being the, major, the majority. And that's not to say that there aren't issues that are specifically affecting black communities, but I think that is to say that oftentimes when we look at racism, there is like that black and white dichotomy, 
And I think that virtue then does lead kind of what you were saying before in terms of what's the role of Asian and Asian Americans in like a white supremacist like hierarchy. It is that middle space, but I think that middle space allows you to align with one group and ideally like also other folks of color um, for a fight against oppression as opposed to you know being in situations in which like slivers of access and opportunity stemming from a proximity to whiteness can bring you. Um, and, it, and it's a hard compromise because especially if someone who is from an older generation, like I couldn't imagine the struggles of this. Honestly, anyone who lived like prior to 1980, I'm just like, how, how did it happen? Like the strength that to exist couldn't be me, like truly could not. Um, and I'm forever grateful that we have the wisdom of our elders to rely on. But I think with that comes like, if your day-to-day -day struggle is just survival, like it's hard to think about how there are other folks also with that day-to-day -day struggle of survival when that's not what you're seeing. Um, because you're too focused on your own survival and totally justifiably and totally valid um, focus on your own personal survival. And I think that mechanism of always focusing on personal survival does affect movements for solidarity that, we, that we're trying to create now. Um, because just to think if things like this were happening when and I feel like it's a little different from the civil rights movement and what we're seeing now because we are able to organize there, I feel like isn't as much Interracial tension, interracial tension between groups of color um, that there were in previous years. So I think if we had the amount of organizational power and bandwidth um, that we're seeing in present day, um, back then when the focus wasn't just on can I live tomorrow and like can I survive the next day, um, and I think that's still a question we're having. Um, but I think because of how connected our society is um, through like technology, it's a struggle that can now be had in unison. Um, and I always wonder like how that would affect, so basically how this moment would affect future generations and what happened if this moment were to occur previously in terms of amplifying, if there wasn't, you know, the explicit assassinations and incarcerations of black folks who were doing this work during the civil rights movement, like what would have happened and the momentum that was made and the change that was made if it were just to continue to happen um, and constantly. Um, to uphold the racial dichotomy that we have at the moment, both back then and now, um, but now that we're getting all more like a nuanced view, a little bit of a tangent, but it can be summed up in the, it can be summed up in like, since white supremacy has, has continued to affect all of our groups so consistently, um, now that there are moments of solidarity that are beginning to happen, beginning to almost like have a renaissance um, in creating these movements against white supremacy as a whole, instead of seeing like, oh, Black Lives Matter is like this divisive movement, but seeing like, oh, if Black Lives Matter, then truly everyone has a more equal opportunity if the folks at the bottom of this, race, of the, of this white supremacist pyramid can have access and equal opportunity. What does that mean for the rest of us who aren't Black, but also aren't white? That was very loud. Apologies for that. No, I really love that, that kind of last point you made, Emily. I think, like, as an Asian American, I don't want to just, like, shame my own community or just, like, guilt trip them. Like, I want to kind of understand, where, uh, you know, where all these thoughts are coming from. And I think, I think, like, a defining trait of the Asian American struggle is to be seen as fully American. Um, even when, like, again, like, 
even praises of Asian Americans are always accompanied by like this foreignness. So when, when like those, when those articles in the sixties talked about like praised Japanese Americans, they talked about how like they were so in tune with Japanese culture and Japanese values. When these people were Japanese American, they're fully American. Why are they being essentialized to like their Asian heritage? Um, so I think in that sense, a lot of Asian Americans and a lot of older Asian people in this country, they kind of, they have this desire to like fit in, to be seen as like true Americans. Um, and I think that kind of feeds into this desire to maybe blend in and like keep our heads down um, and not like cause a scene. I know definitely when I was, when I began to take interest in like social um, justice and, and, you know, learning about race and class and all these facets of identity, my parents kind of were like, I mean, it's good that you're educating yourself on these things, but don't kind of get too involved. Like, don't, you know, don't like put yourself like in harm's way or like, don't, you know, don't be like too, you know, conspicuous, I guess. Um, and I definitely understand where they're coming from in that, you know, we already have kind of a level of privilege in this country and we already, we're doing like pretty well given the fact that we are people of color and we are like immigrants. So we might as well just kind of, you know, maintain the status quo, just like try our best to do, you know, with what we've already been given. Um, and I don't know if you guys, you guys have seen the screenshots of the NYU Lambdas group chat. Um, basically some boys in the, Lambda is a, is a Asian American focused um, frat. And there have been some screenshots from a group chat um, at NYU League. And some of the comments uh, talk about how like, Black, they, they say, quote, black people haven't like supported us before. And even if we like stand up for them now, like, quote, we can support them right now. And chances are they'll never speak up for us again. So that it's this kind of like looking, looking at other people of color and looking at activism and solidarity as like a transactional thing when really our kind of focuses should be towards combating like white supremacy and this larger structure that oppresses all people of color, perhaps in different ways and to various degrees, but that kind of, that's kind of like the main source of oppression. And, and it, like, I understand, but I also kind of feel saddened by this, this way of thinking that we should, we shouldn't like do things for other people of color so that we can try to, you know, succeed better in this country. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that first part of the conversation Jungwoo, Emily, Amiri, Michael, and I had. Hopefully some new thoughts or questions are starting to brew in your mind. And I know that, you know, at least for me, like there were definitely so many things that made me be like, wow, I never thought about it like that. Or wow, I've got to think about this a little more, or I want to dissect this idea a bit more. Um, so anyways, this conversation did end up being pretty long, so I decided to give all you homecoming podcast listeners two full episodes. Part two will air next Saturday, so please make sure to tune in next week to hear the rest of this conversation, because there's definitely still a lot more to come. And again, you know, like, feel free to reach out to any of us, like, individually to start new conversations about race because I think all of us are willing to talk about solidarity and race in this country. So yeah, I'll see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>